Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, August the 18th in the calendar, a calendar created by humans. Um, animals don't have calendars. Maybe they're too smart for them. Uh, they don't have the time either. We've been doing a lot of shows on what we as humans can learn from animals. We seem a little lost these days. We're lacking self-confidence, I think, in ourselves as a species uh, for one reason or another. We did a show last year with Carl Safina, Why Humility is Essential in the Face of Nature. Safina um, has a book out, Becoming Wild, How Animal Cultures Raise Families, Create Beauty and Achieve Peace. Safina's work, like so many naturalists, seem to be shaming us as humans that somehow animals uh, do a better job than us in making themselves happier and perhaps even creating more meaning in their life. Uh, Jackie Higgins as well. We did a show with her, another naturalist, about what animals reveal about our feelings. Her book, Sentient, What Animals Illuminate, How Animals Illuminate the Wonder of Our Human Senses, is another book about animals as a kind of mirror, perhaps, or as a light to enable humans to realize themselves and the world more richly. Uh, did a show with Cy Montgomery, another distinguished naturalist writer, how hawks teach us a different way to love, that we can learn to love through hawks. She has a wonderful new book out, actually, called The Hawk's Way, Encounters with Fierce Beauty. And last but not least, did a show last month with Ed Yong, the Atlantic writer, on how animals help humans develop empathy. He seems to believe that we're missing empathy, and that we can realize this through an immense world. All this is very positive or optimistic and cheerful. Uh, our conversation today is less so. It's on a similar theme. The new book out, If Nietzsche Were a Narwhal, What Animal Intelligence Reveals About Human Stupidity. So uh, this book suggests, I think, that we are rather dumb uh, and that to perhaps compound our understanding of how stupid we are, we need to look at animals. It's a very um, innovative and refreshing take. And uh, my guest today, Justin Gregg, is the author. Justin. Oh. Uh, what's going wrong? We've lost our way as a species, right? I don't know. I mean, we, we're doing pretty well at the moment, to be honest. I think if you're looking at the moment, we are we haven't lost our way. We're doing great. I mean, we have uh, all this and technology, you know, this internet. We're talking with each other, you know, from thousands of miles away. It's good stuff. Medical science, great. Love yeah, but you it. couldn't even make your audio work. It took you a while to figure that out. That's personal stupidity. Did you though. have to rely on the dolphins for that, Justin, or you figured it out yourself? That was all me. They had nothing to do with it. So, yeah, so it's looking in the moment, I think we ha our intelligence is obviously quite stunning and amazing. But the book is sort of tackling the long term, looking at, you know, thousands of years from now, are we still going to be alive? Because that's a question we're all tackling at the moment. Uh, this existential dread is based on uh, climate, the climate emergency, but also the threat of nuclear war and things like happening in Ukraine, you know. Uh, and if you're looking at the long term of our species, a lot of the things we've created with our intelligence might bring about our own destruction. So that's sort of the premise of the book. Like in the long term, is our intelligence a good or a bad thing? 
Well, uh, Justin, you're beginning to sound a little bit like Nietzsche, a bit miserable. Um, and the title of your book, If Nietzsche Were a Narwhal, is a wonderful title. I have to ask one thing about the title, though. Um, are narwhal uh, plural? Shouldn't the title be If Nietzsche Was a Narwhal? I never know if I'm going to get that right or wrong. And frankly, I have editors and people smarter than me to tell me which was or were to go in there. So I believe them. I believe it's not a it's not a throwaway title. Uh, you're an expert on dolphins. Your previous book um, uh, is uh, or was uh, 22 fantastical facts about dolphins. So you write with authority about narwhals and you also write with authority about Nietzsche, who in this photo from Wikipedia with his mustache looks maybe not like a dolphin, but like a walrus. <laughs> Explain the title. What is it about Nietzsche and narwhals that um, capture the argument in your book about animal intelligence and human stupidity? Well, the jumping off point was this observation that Nietzsche made um, looking at a, a cows grazing in a field and sort of lamenting that he wishes he were more like a cow, less intelligent and more like a cow, happier in the moment, less concerned about his own death, etc., and having to grapple with issues of morality. Um, that was a, a, just a, a, a passage he had. He didn't write a lot about animals, but he wrote that. And that was fascinating to me. And I wanted to explore that idea, first of all, to, say, to see if he's right about animals and what they do and do not know. And he wasn't really. They know more than, than he thought they did. But he was right to wonder if their kind of intelligence makes them happier than we are. So that's a subject I tackled, I wrote a whole book about. Um, in that passage, uh, and, and you write about it, um, Nietzsche writes about cows and their forgetfulness. Um, do you think memory is important in terms of intelligence? How, how do you how do you rank memory or make sense of memory in the context of both human stupidity and intelligence? Yeah, it, the way Nietzsche was framing it was that animals couldn't think about their future or their past, and they're sort of stuck in the moment. Uh, and and so it's important because when humans think about the future writ large, you know, we're thinking about our own inevitable demise decades in the future, and animals maybe can't do that. So the ability to to think about your past and the future, this episodic foresight or uh, that that we use is an important building block of the human mind. We're really good at that. And animals do that to some extent. They can mental, mentally time travel, put themselves in the past or the future a little bit, um, but not the same extent as humans. It's really part of what makes us what we are. And therefore, as Nietzsche said, maybe makes us a bit more miserable than your average animal. What is it about our fascination with nature, um, Justin? Um... It was an interesting piece in The Guardian uh, yesterday about uh, in Japan, J Japanese beachgoers want to stick clear of dolphins after a spate of attacks. Um, <laughs> you, you tweet, most wild animals, including dolphins, do not appreciate humans violating their space. I was in Portugal last month and I went on a boat ride like a good tourist to see the dolphins. And every time the dolphins appear, humans behave like maniacs. They grab their cameras, they scream, they shout. Why are we so obsessed? And of, of course we have the phenomenon of zoos as well, but particularly in nature, why do we get such pleasure out of 
watching dolphins. They don't seem to enjoy watching us. It's a fantastic question. It's it it seems to be part of humanity everywhere throughout history. All the stories that we tell, uh, and you know, watching children respond to nature. It's just a universal truth that humans are fascinated by nature and animals, partly because they're useful to us because we build our shelters out of wood and we eat animals. But you're right and that when you go jump in the water with dolphins, people are always fascinated with them. And I think it's, you know, we are part of nature. We live in nature. And if you're looking in the eyes of another animal that has the capacity to maybe communicate with you, to, to, to understand you on some level, this it connects us to nature in a more fundamental way than just looking at a tree for example so i think it's animals in particular that that and especially ones like crows or dolphins or dogs or cats that we can communicate with on some level that fascinate us yeah and encourage us to write books you've dedicated your life or at least your professional life justin to studying uh animals particularly dolphins and uh, other creatures from the sea why what's in it for you, I don't mean economically, but um, what, what has inspired you, not just to write this book, but to commit your life to the study of animals? Well, to be fair, for me, what interests me most is human language. I'm fascinated by human language ever since I studied abroad as a, as a kid in Sweden and tried to learn Swedish. Uh, and I was just interested in, in how language evolved for our species, because it seems so unique. Uh, and so, to figure that out, you have to look at how animals communicate because language obviously must have evolved from earlier forms of communication. So um, that's that was the spark. It was actually human languages. And of course, I'm fascinated by animals as you know, someone in my career must be. But it was really about figuring out the difference or the similarities between animal communication and human language. And dolphins are an obvious choice because they've been involved in so many language experiments over the years. All right. Do you think our fascination with looking at dolphins, for example, might be a nostalgia for a, 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 a pre-linguistic moment in the history of our species, or certainly a, a muddier linguistic moment when we couldn't articulate ourselves as clearly as we can now, for better or worse? Yeah. I mean, I think for all humans, we're always fascinated with this question of who we are, how we got here. Uh, and so looking at an animal, assuming you're, you know, into evolution as the most plausible explanation, you realize that we would have come from a primate species that was similar-ish to a chimpanzee uh, or maybe a mammal species like a dolphin. And so you look to them to to know more about ourselves. So that that has to be that has to be part of it as well. I mean, most when I'm doing science communication about animals, usually you have to make a link between a human and a person for that person to care because we're always inward focused as humans. So let's let's go back to Nietzsche, um, really important thinker in, in a number of levels, particularly it seems to me, and, and you write about this, in his fascination, envy and ambig ambiguity about nature and other species and his thoughts about mankind or humanity but also because of his observations about the end of religion he came out of a religious tradition but perhaps wrote more intelligently and profoundly about the end of religion than any other western philosopher is there a connection do you think justin between the crisis of western religion and our obsession with other creatures and perhaps even books like yours. How did Christians think of nature? There's a hierarchy, isn't there, which seems to have gone away 
once yeah. we give up on believing in the Bible. Well, the, the hierarchy certainly from the Judeo-Christian standpoint is there with, you know, God and then angels and then humans and then animals there for our, our consumption. And that has been the sort of dominant way of thinking about our relationship to animals for uh, many centuries in the West. And even before that, the, the Greeks would have been talking about animals as non-rational beings. So there's always a superiority of, of humanity within the Western thinking. That's not always true in indigenous and other cultures uh, around the world. So our relationship to animals on that point has always been, uh, a, you know, a jumping off point for thinking about the nature of our morality, which is what Nietzsche was focused on. And that's what's great about the modern age, because you can have scientists working on problems of uh, normativity in animals, why animals do one thing and not the other. Do they have ethical or moral systems similar to ours? And if not, what's different about the way we deal with morality? And how did we get to where we are? So that Nietzsche was, you know, dealing with the morality in, involving the church uh, and trying to find other ways of explaining what's good and bad and why we should or shouldn't do things. Um, and that's a unique human trait. Animals don't think along those same lines, even though they do have normative or maybe you could call them ethical systems. Yeah, let, let's talk a little bit more about that. Your book comes with a blurb from Safina. Um, who seems to me to epitomize this new tradition of writing about other species and humans in a similarly ethical way. Uh, Ed Yong, I'm sure you're familiar with his work, argues in his new book, Immense World, that we need to learn empathy from animals. Do they have morality, Justin, or is morality a human? I mean, Nietzsche seemed to suggest this. Morality itself, a, a human invention, an invention of the slaves, at least in his language. I would say that it is human. It, it depends on how you want to define the word morality. Uh, but personally, I would say that there's a difference between the moral systems of humans and the normative system of animals. And the morality comes from our ability to uh, think about the rules and question why they are there and how they could be better or how they apply. Uh, so once you, because animals don't do that, they might have the feelings that give rise to their right and wrongness but humans can analyze rationally right and wrongness and reach conclusions. And that's different for us. And that's how you get, you know, basic laws about when to cross the street or not, but also moral laws, religious laws. Uh, and as I argue in the book, uh, that is unique to us, but it also leads us down some very bonkers paths because there's no shortage of examples of moral imperatives that we've created for ourselves based on this thinking that are objectively terrible that have brought about much evil and pain and suffering. Well, of course, uh, not only was Nietzsche writing in the wake of uh, the death of religion, at least in his mind, or the death of belief in God, but also in the wake of Darwin. Um, do, do you agree with the idea that morality comes out of weakness, that it's somehow, a, perhaps in a Darwinian sense, a, a, a way for us? maybe not as a species, but groups within our species to survive. It's a form I, of power, essentially, which is what Nietzsche argued, for better or worse. Yeah, I'm not sure that that really holds up when you're looking at the, the origin of or the function right now of normative systems in social species, because it's usually social species. So looking at different primates, for example, usually these normative systems are there to maintain cohesion, to prevent violence, to prevent death and to make it easier to live in a society uh, that can function and succeed. 
Um, and so in that sense, normative systems and the moral systems that grew out of them are about maintaining uh, not not power, not quest for power, but maintaining enough balance so that the species doesn't uh, extinct itself. So they're really less negative, I think, than the way Nietzsche would have framed this battle, this battle for power. You write about Nietzsche's turn to madness on the street in Turin. It's a famous story of him embracing a horse. And after that, he, I don't think he wrote anything again and he went crazy. He yeah. was a little, a little crazy, obviously, and that that distinguishes his work. I think in, in some ways that's what makes his work so compelling and so contemporary. Um, he seemed to appreciate the tragedy of other species. Is that fair? Is that something that we can capture? I mean, when we see the suffering of nature, the elimination of species, the cruelty we have against chickens or cattle, um, should we have a, a Nietzschean reaction? I mean, I think so. And that's one of the things that makes us unique is that we can apply our concepts of empathy to other species in ways that they can't necessarily themselves do. Uh, we can think more broadly about, uh, you know, suffering and whether or not it's good or bad. And we can envision a world in which there is less suffering because it's, we would say, the right thing to do. And that is unique to our species. But the tragedy, of course, is that even though we can envision this world where there's less suffering for ourselves, but also less suffering for animals, uh, we generally don't create less suffering. We are creating more suffering. Uh, and so that's that's one of the reasons I think it's kind of we're a sort of tragic species and that there's more to be learned. So we should cry rather than Nietzsche crying when he saw a, a horse flogged in the street of Turin, we should cry when we look at ourselves. Um, in the Times review, um, uh, the the reviewer, and you get a nice review from the reviewer, is really tough. So congratulations on that. Thanks. Uh, if Nietzsche had born a, been born a narwhal, uh, you write, the world might have never had to endure the horrors of the Second World War or the Holocaust. She picks you up on this. You also write about this in other contexts. What's the diff? I, I don't see the connection between uh, Nietzsche being born a narwhal and avoiding the horrors of the Second World War or the Holocaust. You're not blaming Nietzsche for those, are you? No, not directly. Although I, I do a quick, in his biography in the start, I mentioned how his sister, uh, who was a Nazi sympathizer, um, was taking care of him at the time when he was sort of catatonic and couldn't speak or write anymore. Uh, and she quite famously took his writings and used them as the philosophical underpinning for the Nazi movement. Uh, and that Nietzsche himself, most people I think would agree, would not have appreciated that because his writing wasn't about that. And he was a, a sort of an anti-anti-Semite. Like, and so in that sense, his writings ended up accidentally supporting uh, the Second World War. So it's just to sort of, it's just to illustrate in a sense how really complicated reasoning and rationality can create a, a moral imperative as it did for the Nazis to commit genocide, which they thought was the right thing to do. Uh, and so that's... that's yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, that that may be another subject, uh, Justin. Let's steer clear of that one. Um, <laughs> your, the Wall Street Review uh, title of your book, uh, Big Brains, Big Problems, and another review talks about if humans are the smartest animals, why are we so unhappy? Is there a connection between intelligence and unhappiness? Can animals be unhappy and doesn't, there shouldn't be any contradiction. If we're smart, 
then unhappiness almost comes naturally. We should almost celebrate unhappiness, shouldn't we? Uh, yeah, well, that's the question. And that's down to a, a sort of your personal preference about whether or not unhappiness is a good or a bad thing. Because yes, all animals and humans being animals will experience pleasure and unhappiness and suffering. It's just part of uh, being an animal. It's what drives us to do things and want to change things. Uh, but the question I sort of try and tackle in the book is, are humans more unhappy uh, than other animals because of some of these cognitive traits, like because we can think about our own deaths? Uh, and I, you know, I'm envisioning a, you know, a chicken living in a perfectly happy chicken world versus myself living my a best factory life. farm. You mean a chicken? No, definitely the opposite of a factory farm. That's us creating misery for them. But a, a wild chicken living in some ideal utopian conditions, is it going to be okay. happy? than us. And I'm not sure because they don't have to worry about their own deaths. And that's what Nietzsche was saying. Uh, and But there's an argument, of course, to be made that thinking about knowing your own mortality makes you produce great, wonderful, beautiful things and art. And that itself is good. So it's kind of a personal preference. And uh, there's no hard and fast rule. I'm not a big fan of knowing that I'm going to die one day. It's kind of a bummer for me. Your newsletter... Uh is about what it means to be human. Um, is that, in your mind, what it means? You're Nietzschean in the sense that we're aware of our own deaths and that, as you would put it, to borrow a word from you, is a bit of a bummer? I'd say so. Uh, when, when you sort of catalog all the cognitive traits that we have, uh, our, our desire to know cause and effect, our ability to put ourselves into the future uh, and understand our own deaths, uh, those are you know language and other things. Combine all those things together, and that is who we are. So part of being human is understanding deeply how time works and understanding your own morality. So that is definitely what makes us human. I mean, is, is it what makes us human, um, Justin, or what makes us modern? I, I saw a movie last night, a 1982 American classic, and I'm going to mangle the title, Koyaniskwatsi. Life Out of Balance, a strongly and very relevant film today, even if it was made 40 years ago, a remarkable film. Um, and it's made very much from a, an indigenous Indian point of view, the end of the film, which is about how we've destroyed the, not just uh, other species, but the, 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 um, the earth itself, uh, the planet. Um, ends with some quotes from Hopi prophecies from... Uh, indigenous Indians. Can't we return to some of these traditions where we live in balance with nature? We've done lots of shows on this. We did one with George Monbiot, who has a new book out, Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet. We've done lots of shows about rediscovering the tradition of indigenous peoples. It's not an either or, isn't it? Can't we go back to living not just more harmoniously with nature, but with other species too? It, it, I don't know if that is uh, possible because, in a sense, many of those are, are past cultures and things have moved on. Uh, and so it's, it's difficult once you have things like the Internet to just decide to shut it off. Uh, and so we have to we have the world around us as it is now. And we need to obviously change something or, you know, we could all go extinct. So how we go about doing that, I do not know. But certainly whatever behaviors that we have dictated by laws need to include 
reducing harm to the world around us, the environment around us, because we need that to survive, uh, you know, stopping burning fossil fuels, you know, and deforestation, those sorts of things, obviously. Uh, and so that would mean either new technologies uh, or reduction of current technologies. And that's difficult for us to maintain, but it has to be the goal. So what can we learn, um, Justin, from animal intelligence about reducing our human stupidity? I think it's acknowledging how we think and that our intelligence is unique and fantastic and animals don't have something similar. They're not as interested in cause and effect uh, as we are. And that allows our science to exist. But acknowledging that, yes, that may be more sophisticated, but it's leading to very dangerous outcomes for us. And so sometimes we do not need to always strive for more, for expansion, for more creation, knowing that it could lead to, to danger. And I think if you reduce the arrogance around our intelligence, always being able to solve problems and always being a good thing, and you you're a little more humble about how it's potentially destructive, it maybe allows us to, you know, relax a little bit, tone it down and find a solution that is more like, as you mentioned, harmonious living with nature. And like animals do, not because they do it by design uh, or because they're thinking about it, but because they do it by design from biology. They can't create the combustion engine. So what you're saying is that we need to essentially escape our biology. Maybe we can do that with new technology. And in particular, what can we learn from the narwhal? Some, this is a, a creature you know quite a lot about. You've written, as I said, about dolphins. Your professional life, your day job is focused on uh, dolphin research. Um, what can we particularly learn from dolphins rather than just gaping and gazing at them from boats and screaming when they sh pop up on the, on the sea? I think just watching any marine uh, mammal eke out a living uh, and understanding that they're able to do it and have been successfully doing it for the hundreds of thousands or millions of years without the need for all of this uh, expansion and technology and things. Um, and that that is not something we should necessarily emulate because we, we, we can't emulate it, but realize that uh, simplicity sometimes is better for us when it comes to our own e extinction. So I just... Well, yeah. there, you, you sound you sound like a, a proponent of an indigenous lifestyle, for better or worse. I mean, we're we're trapped, and that's it's the Nietzschean trap. We can't go back, we can't go forward. We know too much, and we can't escape that knowledge. It's true, but there is a lot to be learned from, especially here where I am in Nova Scotia, uh, from indigenous peoples uh, that uh, you know have signed treaties with people in Canada and working together with them to create a better future. That's not just based on Western ideology because that is becoming part of the problem, uh, but something that blends the two to create an environment that's healthier for everybody. So listening to indigenous uh, peoples and stakeholders from, from other uh, cultures will 100% be the solution to the problem, I think. What would have happened, uh, Justin, if narwhals turned out to be Nietzsche? Well, that's then you just get another version of a human. You know, imagine a narwhal that could contemplate its own death, and then and then yeah, imagine a narwhal with mustache. Well, I mean, they'd be lucky. I wish I could grow a mustache like that, to be honest with you. But um, yeah, I mean, any animal that develops human-like intelligence is going to be sucked into the dangers of being like a human. 
Uh, and that's why I say we shouldn't necessarily always celebrate it when we find it in another animal, because maybe it's a liability. Well, your book is not a liability. It's a, it's a wonderfully original, entertaining, and I think human, all too human, as Nietzsche might say, book. If Nietzsche were a narwhal, maybe it should be if Nietzsche was a narwhal, certainly uh, we get the idea what human intelligence reveals about human stupidity. It's I mean, they're treating it as your first book. It's not your first book, but it's your first book of this type. Congratulations, Justin. You seem to have broken through. It's an important, interesting new book. What else are you reading these days? What other books would you suggest to make sense of our Nietzschean cage, our dilemma? of well, Wanting I'm... to be part of nature, wanting to escape nature and not being able to, knowing all too much. Yeah, well, there's a, a slate, a couple new books that just came out on, on long-termism and this idea of uh, what what do we owe future generations? And that's now part of the dialogue. And some of that's based on sort of utilitarian philosophy, which is fascinating. And so I think uh, I, I, there's the Ari, uh, I can't remember the two books off the top of my head, but... Um, One is on ancestors, um, the husband of um, uh, Kate Raworth. Uh, yeah, it's McCaffrey. thinking like ancestors or... Yeah, yeah. And then uh, an Ari Wabak, I believe is his name. So um, those those books are great. And so that's my next way forward. Like, I think I, in a way I've identified the problem. This is what we're doing wrong. What is the solution? And uh, let's, those look like books that offer some sort of solution, whether or not it's a good one remains to be seen.